This is Jay Michaels. And I'm speaking with the movers, shakers, and indie art makers in the Passion Pit. There are those out there like Robert Viagas and this next gentleman, who are the closest we have to high priests in the temple of the arts. These author, playwright, commentator, reviewers travel the city and the world and share their thoughts on the seeds for which great art grows and then commit them to razor-sharp memory so the next generations can learn about great art, great artists, from the greatest orators. From the moment uh, this author and prominent theater critic, Peter Felicia, picked up the phone, I could tell I would be part of an enthralling, entertaining, and enlightening conversation. His endless knowledge, his abundant wit, and surprisingly, his deep humility showed me what a true person of the theater looks like. Okay, shh, down in front. Raise the curtain to Peter Felicia. Hi. Hello, is this is this the great sage Peter Felicia? No, 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 hardly. Uh, <laughs> this, is, this is Peter Felicia, and that's the best I can do. <laughs> well, that is really wonderful. This is Jay Michaels. If I'm on the line, you're on the air. Uh, Mr. Felicia, I truly feel like I'm speaking to a great sage. Uh, in, in, in learning more about you, uh, you, you remind me of those... In, in, in the ancient times when there were these, these, these great high priests who lived just outside of town uh, uh, and knew all and, and told to those who listened. And, and in terms of Broadway, you are definitely that. Uh, well, I'm pretty short, so I don't know if I could ever be a high priest. <laughs> and, um, and I have tried very hard to live an exemplary life, so as a result, I don't think I should be compared to a priest at all. But that's another story. <laughs> I knew you would be charming. I saw you at I saw you host the uh, the Theater World uh, Awards oh, this year, and you were absolutely marvelous. You you kept the proceedings just dancing by, to to oh, nice. pardon the nice pun. Oh, my absolute pleasure. So tell our listeners about yourself for the for the one person out there who doesn't know how brilliant you are. Whoa! Uh, I write about theater. Um, I've been uh, going for a long time. Um, since literally 1961 when I was 15 years old, which makes me 73 now. And I would guess that I've seen about 80 to 90% of the Broadway musicals that have been produced then. Um, fewer with the plays, probably about 65%. But um, Oh, is that all? Oh, I hope you get better at it. Well, um, last year I did set a record, not that I tried, when I saw 401 shows in a season. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, those matinees and late night shows really help. So, um, <laughs> so yeah, and I never OD on it. I have to say, even when things are terrible, I saw two, two terrible shows last night—one at seven, one at nine. But um, those things happen, and you never know when theatrical magic is going to strike. So I always go with great optimism and hope, and uh, never get discouraged when it turns out to be a stinker. And, and even a stinker. Okay, well, there's fine theater stories that go with that. Sure, sure, of course, and um, <laughs> I've certainly had terrible experiences that um, that still boggle my mind. I mean, um, I still remember the musical version of Exodus, which was called <laughs> Ari, where there was a concentration camp ballet, you know, so um, that was no fun at all, um, and the show didn't last on Broadway very long at all. Uh, yeah. And, <laughs> So, and what made it worse was the fact that it, this was a tryout in Washington, and when we came out of the theater, there was like eight feet of snow that had happened during the performance.
Commons, and uh, so it was really tough getting back to Baltimore and uh, staying. So, so anyway, yeah, there of course there are a lot of terrible things that uh, that uh, happened, but you know, even with a play that doesn't have um, tremendous merit, occasionally you can find something in it that uh, it can even change your life. I mean, a play that I saw in 1977 called Days in the Trees, which you've never heard of, uh, had a scene where. Um, well, it was about a, a woman who was so cheap, so cheap, she always drove her grown son crazy because whenever he took her out for her birthday, she would always say, look at these prices on the menu. Look at them. My God, isn't it terrible that they charge so much? And then when the bill came, oh, look at this bill. We shouldn't have come. And he said, Mother, it's so simple. You put the money on the table, you leave, you forget about it. And since then, <laughs> that's been my attitude. You know, and I oh, that's great. That. So even though the play wasn't so hot, you know, so I really do believe that people do become better people by going to the theater. Now, of course, it's a lot of junk. Of course, and I don't even mean in the sense that bad plays. I mean, you know, for example, um, in, in the 20s, there was a play called 80s Irish Rose, which ran a long time, and it was junk, granted, granted. However, for the most part, the theater is pretty uplifting, and you can really become a better person from going to the theater a lot, because as opposed to action movies or things like that, you really do learn some lessons that really do change your life. I mean, there was a play called Tribute, in which it was a very clever idea about a beloved, beloved comedian. Everybody's crazy about him. He makes everybody laugh. Oh, he's so beloved. Uh, except, except his son doesn't like him. Why? Because the comedian cheated on his mother, and the boy's on the mother's side. But anyway, now they... The and they made a movie of that with Sorry. Jack Lemmon. Yes, that was a wonderful movie. Jack Lemmon, in fact, did the stage play, too. Huh? So anyway, the boy goes around and says to all the people who are going to give tribute, um, why do you like my father? Why do you like him? And there are very different answers that people give, but one of them is because he treats everybody the same. And since I saw that play, I treat everybody the same. That's wonderful. That's the type of thing I'm talking about. And that's what makes a difference when you go to the theater many times. Not all, but many. Indeed. Now, now, now you're talking about theater being a life changer. What made you get into it? What made you, at the tender age of 15, say, okay, I'm, I'm standing here uh, amid these artists and I'm staying here the rest of my days? How, what, what made you do that? Well, it was very strange. Um, um, I'm the quintessential baby boomer. I literally was born nine months after World War II. <laughs> <laughs> so That's great. Dad came, dad came home from the Army and they wanted to get going, and they did. And there I am. <laughs> so anyway, as a result, I'm a rock and roll kid when I'm growing up because I'm nine years old when Elvis Presley hits the scene, and I become tremendously interested in rock music. And so um, when my parents gave me a tape recorder for Christmas in 1960, I um, begged um, a friend of theirs who had a grown teenage son if I could tape his records. And um, he said, okay. Well, anyway, the point is they gave me three rolls of tape, and if they gave me two, I don't think I'd be here today. But what had happened was I had filled the two rolls of tape with... Um, with all the rock songs, and I had one tape left, and my parents weren't ready to leave. So I looked at the parents' records, and they had the soundtrack to the movie Gigi. And I, I didn't know what that was, but I do know it played in downtown Boston. I'm from Massachusetts. It played in downtown Boston for two years, so it must have something. And I put it on, and it was the most important sounding music I had ever heard. And as a result, I wound up playing other of the parents' albums, uh, including My Fair Lady, which I had heard about. I didn't know... Um, I had not seen the movie. So anyway, my mother heard me 
listening to this over and over and over again, said, well, we'll go to New York this summer and you can see it. And here's the thing. I didn't even know that people were still putting on plays. See, you know, when electricity came in, people stopped using candles. When uh, automobiles came in, people stopped using horses. I assume when film came in, people would stop using, doing plays. That's so ironic. Oh, that's great. So as a result, we get to the theater, and my mother buys the ticket. I mean, she's not going to uh, buy two because it's too expensive. I mean, it's $4.95 for an office. <laughs> and she can't afford it, but she does buy one for me. And I'm looking at the marquee, and it says um, Michael Allison and Margot Bozer and My Fair Lady. And, you know, the album I taped said Rex Harrison and Julie Andrews. But what had happened was that... Um, Trevor Howard had been on Jack Parr's the, the Tonight Show um, a few weeks earlier and was talking about the remake he was doing of Mutiny on the Bounty. And so I assumed this was the remake of My Fair Lady, that Boston was so far behind the oh, menu, so the original one, but here's the remake. So I walk in and they give me a cute little um, booklet, and I have to sit in an assigned seat. But, you know, there were some movies at that time that did that, that um, had you sit in a signed seat. So this didn't surprise me. I thought this was, you know, New York. It's a fancy place. This is what you do. But I did start hearing some strange sounds coming up from the front of the theater, which indeed was the sound of musicians tuning up. And suddenly I thought, my God, is this really going to be live? And I remember turning to the woman next to me, getting ready to ask her if it was going to be live. And um, then I thought, shut up. It's going to start at 2 o'clock. <laughs> And then there was a power failure. Oh, you know, I was so upset because, you know, they'd give me my money back and I wouldn't, I'd never know because I would never have the, the um, courage to ask anybody because I'd, I'd be stupid if I asked anybody if it was real or on film. Um, actually, it wasn't a power failure. It was the house-like beginning. That I oh, my gosh. Oh, that's great. <laughs> so anyway, the officer starts, bah, 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 and the curtain goes up. And there's now what I know to be called a scrim, which is, uh, in this case, was a big white space with all sorts of flowers around it, but it looked like a screen. And I thought, oh, see, New York is so fancy, their screens have flowers all around them. <laughs> and then the scrim was lit from behind, and I saw real people there. I saw an actor struggle a little bit, moving back and forth. So um, I, it was Wednesday night, maybe he was probably out late drinking on Tuesday night. So as a result... <laughs> Uh, he, uh, the curtain, the scrim went up and uh, my life changed totally. So that's really how it started. And um, there's still uh, quite a bit of that little boy in me whenever I go. That is absolutely wonderful. Well, you, you've, you've entered it beyond just uh, writing about it, as you've done in so many different venues. Uh, you now have your own play out. You now you have a show of your own. That's out there. Well, it did close, but nevertheless, yes, we did run from uh, January to um, July. And ironically enough, the Theatre World Awards that you mentioned is mm -hmm. the reason that actually happened, because um, Eric Krebs, who's been producing Off-Broadway for about 40 years, uh, came to the Theatre World Awards and um, afterwards called me and said, listen, I like your sense of humor, and I've had an idea for a play, and would you write it? So that's what happened. And God loved him. He was such a great producer. He put up all the money, which was considerable, and I was very supportive. He had an idea for the play. I said, how about this instead? And he said, oh, that's better. Go with it. You know, so he was really quite nice. But that's what happened there, and um, I'm very, very pleased about that. It was sort of your clever adaptation of Christmas Carol, if I'm correct? Oh, that's a different play. Oh! Oh, wow! <laughs> no, um, the 
play that was off Broadway was called God Shows Up, and that's exactly what happened. God Shows Up on a televangelist show. That's right. That's right. I read about that also. Okay, yes. Right. Yeah, the other play, The Christmas Carol, Adam's Gift, which has been done um, in a few places around the country, is a different take on A Christmas Carol. Um, because, you know, when you're a theater critic, which I am, you see A Christmas Carol a lot. A lot. Oh, yeah. Oh, you, know, sure. you, see, you see a conventional version, you see a musical version, you see a one-man show, and you eventually see an update. And I saw so many updates where uh, there was Ebenezer Scrooge um, and Bob Cratchit, and nobody's saying, you know, we're talking about 21st century setting, you know, nobody's saying, hey, this is funny, your name is Scrooge and your name is Cratchit, they used to be in you know. Um And for that matter, who's named Ebenezer today? How many Ebenezers do you know? I don't know any. Yeah. You know, so I thought, is there any way the Christmas Carol could be convincing um, in a 21st century setting. And I, I, I think I did find a way, and uh, so the play's been done here and there, and I'm very happy about that. That is absolutely wonderful. That's, that's really great. Um, oh, that's right. I read about your televangelist uh, piece, which sounded uproarious. Uh, uh, very well, yeah. Good. Uh, the, uh, my, now, 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 you have seen multitudes of shows. Have you ever seen uh, what I'll call the sleeper hit? Have you ever seen something didn't have a lot of press, people weren't that interested in it, but you looked at it and you said, okay, and that's it. That's the next Tony. That's the next one. That's, that's the next piece. Have you ever looked at something that got clairvoyant? I'll tell you, what immediately comes to mind was um, the first professional review I ever wrote. Um, I had been writing college reviews, and uh, this was in Boston, and um, there was a new publication starting called Boston After Dark, which wanted to be the village voice of Boston, mm -hmm. and um, so um, they uh, recruited me, and, um, and they said, all right, listen, there's this play on Cape Cod, go to it, it sounds terrible, so that's why they sent me, because they want to waste one of their, you know, prime reviewers to do it, and I went, and I came back, and I said, it is terrific, and you can this guy's a moron, um, because it was about a blind boy who falls in love, and it was a play called Butterflies are Free, oh. which, that was in August of um, 69, and in October of 69, it was already on Broadway, right. and um, you know, things happened faster in those days, so as a result, in a roundup, running about three years, got a movie and all that, and so, so that was one that I really um, believed in right from the beginning. Another one um, on Broadway, I went to a preview. Uh, I wasn't reviewing at the time, I just went to a preview, and everybody thought it was going to be terrible, it was called Mornings at Seven, because the play had failed twice before, twice before on Broadway, never um, never ran more than 30-odd performances, and um, and I just thought it was terrific, and came out and told everybody, oh, you got to go, and they thought, oh my God, but it's, it's always failed, you know, but it became a big hit, and a, a, quite a Tony winner. Um, Indeed. So, uh, yeah, I, it's, it's really great when that happens. You expect nothing. For that matter, I remember seeing Annie at Good Speed um, in Connecticut, and Alexis said, "Ah, it's just Oliver with girls." You know, I was hearing, and it was in terrible shape at the beginning of the run. But I saw the final performance of Good Speed, and while it wasn't all there yet, I could tell that it was going to be all there because the thing was with Annie—you know—you thought it might be a spoof, it was going to be hilarious. You know, the little girl with no eyes and all that. Um, it was going to be cute, and you never expected to get emotionally involved with it, but you cared about this little girl, and you cared about this man, you cared about this little girl, so that was a bit of a surprise, too. They, they really, uh, they really, I remember following Annie in the newspapers, and then, well, Little Orphan Annie, and then seeing the show on Broadway, and it was, 
I, I was so amazed at, at the depth that they found within this little no-eyed girl and, and bald millionaire. Right. Ah, you bet. Now, yeah. now, how about on the other side? Have you ever seen something, have you ever seen the go-to piece, the, everybody said, this is the one that's going to work, and you sat in the theater and just said, nuh-uh, that ain't it? Well, not just uh, me, believe me, but um, back in 1966, there was a musical version of Breakfast at Tiffany's, the Truman Capote novel, and everybody was very excited because Mary Tyler Moore, which had just finished um, the uh, Dick Van Dyke show, mm -hmm. which won Emmys, was coming to Broadway, and um, she was going to play Holly Golightly, the part that Audrey Hepburn played in the famous 1961 film. Right. And Richard Chamberlain was going to play the part that Judge Papart played. He had just come from a successful TV series, Dr. Kildare. Mm -hmm. Now, um, the music and uh, lyrics were written by Bob Merrill, who had never had a show that ran less than a year. And by the way, a year in those days was a long run. And the other thing is that he had just uh, finished writing the lyrics to Funny Girl. So he wrote the lyrics to People and uh, all those other songs that uh, turned out to be very successful. So, and the, uh, it was going to be directed and written by Gabe Burroughs, who had done the same thing for Guys and Dogs. Indeed. Business without really trying. And it was produced by David Merrick. Oh, my gosh. So, I mean, how can it miss? Oh, my God. That's all winners right there. Yeah. Well, the irony is, <laughs> um, more than anything else, is that through the years, I was able to sing the score because so many people would say to me, what was it like? And I, I, every few weeks, I'd be able to sing some snippets from the score. Anyway, the thing is, not only was it terrible, but they had this enormous <laughs> advance sale. They could have run for a long, long time, but David Merrick said, I cannot do this to the American public. And he shut it down after four previews. And it didn't even open to the critics. He said, I'm not doing that. Um, I'm just closing it down. So it got to New York at the Majestic Theater where Phantom now is. Mm. And um, and that was it. You know, before previews, he just shut it down. No cast album, nothing like that. But that was one that we all expected was going to be sensational. And it really turned out to be one of the worst things uh, we'd ever seen. And, you know, since then, I've certainly had many, many worse things, <laughs> including that Ari that I mentioned. Indeed. Um, the musical version of Exodus. But, but all things considered, it really was such a disappointment when we all expected it to be magnificent. Why, uh, why a theater critic? Why, after, after seeing, after seeing the, the, the remake of, of My Fair Lady and, and loving it, what made you say, I'm going to write about it, as opposed to immediately becoming an actor, a director, a, a, a writer, or anything, a, a playwright, that is, what made you say, I want to be a theater critic? I want to, I want to write about it. Really? Very accidental. Uh, what had happened was, um, in high school, I went to a small high school. Our graduating class was 146. Mm. And um, because I was going to the theater and, and talking about it to all my friends um, in, in school, I became known as the guy who was going to the theater who was willing to put out, you know, four, five, six dollars to go to see a play. And so I became, you should pardon the expression, famous for that. Anyway, one day at college, I was simply walking up a stairway and coming down a stairway was a guy who um, was in high school with me. And he said, hey, I just became editor of the school paper. Uh, why don't you be our theater critic? And so, uh, you know, I had never thought about that. I didn't know anything about it. I thought, you know, I don't know if I can afford it because I'll have to pay for my tickets. And then I didn't know you got them free when you're a theater critic. Um, in fact, <laughs> they give you two. 
they give you two. I mean, my girlfriend really has it easy because she can go sit there like a queen and watch it or even walk out while I'm thinking, what am I going to say? What am I going to say that nobody else has said? What am I going to say that I've never said before, et cetera, et cetera. So it's much easier for her. But anyway, so really, if I had taken a different stairway or the elevator or he wasn't coming down, I don't know if any of this would have happened. It seems there's a lot of fate in your life. Uh, uh, you, you get the three tapes as opposed to two. You you, you bump right into the the uh, the editor of the school paper. Uh, uh, do you, do you think it's do you think it's fate? Do you think uh, uh, I know this is way off the topic? Do you think do you think things are predestined? Do you think the fates uh, one day said okay, and that is the man that will write about the theater, and and it just happened. It never occurred to me in those terms, but uh, perhaps that is the case. Um, yeah, who knows who's pulling the strings up there? Um, as, as like the logo in my fifth lady, where George Bernard right. is pulling the strings on uh, both Henry Higgins and Eliza Doolittle. I don't know who's pulling the strings, and I don't know if anybody is pulling the strings. Or, but I, what I will say is, so many stories that I hear when I interview people turn out to be about being in the right place at the right time. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> you know, it's wonderful to have talent. Uh, which so many performers do, but nothing beats being in the right place at the right time. Matthew Sklar, who um, had the prom on Broadway, he's a composer, um, uh, the wedding singer, Elf, um, mm. has had you know, Broadway shows, sorry, a composer. He was an usher in Rahway, New Jersey, and on October 7th, one year, he came into the, um, he was going to work a, a Marvin Hamlish concert, and he came in, and um, everybody saying, hey, happy birthday, Matt, happy birthday, Matt. And Marvin Hamlish heard this and said, oh, it's your birthday. Uh, tell me about you. Um, well, I want to be like you, Mr. Hamlish. I want to be a composer. Oh, sit down. Play me something. He played him something. Marvin Hamlish said, that's very good. During the concert, Marvin Hamlish stops and says, listen, listen. I, I, this is song going through my head. I'm telling you. Matt, uh, uh, come up here. Play that song for everybody. So the kid came up, played the song, got friendly with Marvin Hamlish, asked me Marvin Hamlish to write his college recommendations, Marvin did, and I imagine he got into every school he wanted, and the thing was, that launched his career. Now, if it had been, if Marvin Hamlish had been there on October 6th, October 8th, it wouldn't have happened. Amazing. <laughs> you know, I mean, so, nothing beats being in the right place at the right time. I, I, I always think, that my father was a salesman, and, and he used to get tickets to different things to bring the clients, and, and one particular time he had extra tickets and it was not to a ball game. It was not to anything else which he got tickets. It was to a Broadway show. And, and so there it was. Uh, and, that, and that's how I got into it. So, yeah, I guess, uh, I guess, I guess someone up there uh, uh, that looks like George Bernard Shaw definitely has strings that are, that are pulling all of us. Now, you, you, you have seen it all. How has it changed? You know, I, I always, my entire life uh, uh, of over 50 years, I've always heard people say, oh, Broadway's not the same. I remember when this was different. How's it changed? How have you who've seen it all? How has it changed? Well, it's changed tremendously. And yeah. um, the expression I often use is the fact that what appealed to me about Broadway when I was a kid was that it was sophisticated entertainment and um, adult entertainment. And now that I'm a sophisticated adult, I have to go to Broadway for kids' entertainment. Um, there are a lot of shows that are really marketed uh, towards kids because they want the next generation to come up. I wish, in fact, that they had made it easier for kids to go see uh, shows that were adult in nature. Mm. And, of course, I don't mean anything pornographic. I just mean sophisticated. Of course. And um, it would have been better. But I'm afraid there has been um, a dumbing down of Broadway, just as there's been in so much of our culture. And I know I sound 
ancient uh, by saying that, and I don't care. I really do wish that we had um, sophisticated shows the way we used to. I mean, there, there used to be a playwright named Jean Anouy who used to get pr- produced on Broadway quite often. And again, elegant, elegant type of uh, entertainments. He hasn't been produced on Broadway in a long, long time. And the big producers of yesteryear, I'm talking about David Merrick and Harold Prince, mm-hmm. who's played by Jean Anouy. And, you know, they just don't get done anymore. Uh, even the uh, non-commercial theaters like Roundabout rarely does one. And um, But it was frothy but elegant and sophisticated entertainment, and I miss those shows. So um, I miss the um, smart lyrics we used to have. Um, you know, in Finian's Rainbow, there's the lyric, when I'm not near the girl I love, I love the girl I'm near. When I can't fondle the hand that I'm fond of, I fondle, I fondle the, the hand, hand, hand. Yeah, exactly. Right. You don't get that type of thing anymore at all. Uh, you also don't get uh, perfect rhymes, uh, which I really prefer. Um, so many times, um, M's rhyme with N and they don't. And plurals rhyme with singulars, which they don't. So, right. so yes, um, I do miss all that. Um, but I do think, you know, it's very interesting. Everything is cyclical. And a hundred years ago, musicals were very silly until somebody said, uh, let's make them um, more um, artful. And that eventually happened. I'm not going to live to see it, but there will be a renaissance and theater will be sophisticated and elegant and intelligent again. Oh, it will happen. for sure. The pendulum will swing. Do you think sure. that now, obviously, the, yes, the producers want to get the kids in the theater so that they'll stay in the theater. But isn't that like cartoons? Okay, I, I watched Mighty Mouse when I was a kid. I'm not going to watch it now. Uh, wouldn't it have been wiser for the producers to find exciting, fun musicals that are a little more adult, like you were saying, a little more mature, so that the kids will enjoy it now, and then they'll really want to enjoy it when they're when they're older and have money of their own? The, the yes, I would think that would be a better solution. I mean, the thing is, as you say, when you're a kid, you have certain expectations of what entertainment will be, and then time goes on, and you I remember the first time, uh, when I was 15, I heard that Our Town was the greatest play ever. And I remember buying it in Harvard Square, and I think still to this day, when I pass a certain spot on Massachusetts Avenue in Cambridge, it always reminds me of Our Town, because that's when I looked up while I was on the bus going home, and saying, this place is terrible. Well, seven years later, I read it when I was 22, and he must have done a rewrite, because it was so good. <laughs> you know, so, uh, yeah. Uh, the first time I ever saw Three Sisters by Chekhov, I walked out. Um, again, I was in my teens, and that was one of my favorite plays. So, yes, we do, uh, our tastes do change. And, of course, uh, it also changes with age for a different reason. Indeed. I remember investing in a play called Loot by Joe Wharton, where two young guys, about my age at the time, um, really made a fool and a victim of an old man. Now I see the play, and I feel bad for the old man. Why is that? And, you know, I think we know why. You know? so, yeah. Our, our taste changes as time goes on. But, you know, on the other hand, I guess it's good to get people used to walking through the doors because there is still that contingency of people that truly believe that when going to the theater means wearing a high hat, a tuxedo, spats, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, the idea of getting away from that, that um, theater can be for everybody, is a good thing. Um, I'd still like to be a little uh, loftier in its uh, intentions. Good. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you said that. People eat salads in the audience while wearing short pants and flip-flops. I wouldn't mind that that being a, a, a little different than, than it is. Well, the 
interesting you bring that up because, of course, the one thing, critics are criticized quite a bit for being critics and being critical. But I go to performances, of course, with critics, and they behave. They don't eat, you know, all that kind of business. And, like, every now and then I'll be out to do a story on a replacement who comes in. So a show is a year or two or even older. And I go and I'm appalled by the, the audience, you know, that, as you say, are eating and talking and uh, just don't pay attention. So, yes, um, I do think it would be very good if uh, if audiences do come more often so that they learn that is not what they're supposed to be doing. I completely agree. I completely agree. Mr. Felice, I know you have to disappear very shortly, so, so I just wanted to thank you very much for this wonderful interview. It, it was a master class for me, I have to say. Uh, uh, thank you, sir. A pleasure speaking to you, and I will tell our listeners exactly where they can where they can find uh, your marvelous work and and all good things like that. Thank you again so much. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Bye. Next week in the Passion Pit, we'll speak to an old buddy of mine, Sky Walters. His story of creating a music business in Miami is dwarfed by the story of how he did it when all around him were health obstacles. We'll also chat about running the Renaissance with Alexander Carney and Michael Hagens. We'll hear about horror films from Chris Williams, Marcus Slavine, and Jeremiah Kipp. And then we will worship at the temple of classic TV with its own high priest, Herbie J. Pilato. Now, in honor of Mr. Felicia, we'll end with the national anthem. Till then... I'm Jay Michaels. Everything about it is appealing, everything that traffic will allow. Nowhere could you get that happy feeling when you are stealing that extra bow. There's no people like show people, they smile when they are low. Yesterday they told you you would not go far, that night you open and there you Next day on your dressing room, they've hung a star. Let's go on with the show. The costumes, the scenery, the makeup, the props, the audience that lifts you when you're down. The headaches, the heartaches, the backaches, the flops, the sheriff who escorts you out of town. The opening when your heart beats like a drum. The closing when the customers don't come. There's no business like show business, like no business I know. You get word before the show has started that your favorite uncle died at dawn. On top of that, your partner might have parted. You're broken hearted, but you go on. They are long, even with a turkey that you know will fold. 
change it for a sack of gold. 